Hello, you are listening to the Voice of Wealth podcast. My name is Charlotte de Capoisson. In May, the investment strategy team at BNP Paribas Wealth Management upgraded the healthcare sector to positive from neutral. To understand the reasons behind this decision and to get to grips with this fast-changing industry, I am joined by Ed Shing, Global CIO of BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Hello, Ed. Great to see you again. Thank you, Charlotte. The healthcare sector is gigantic. Furthermore, healthcare spending has grown to represent 18% of the US economy, so a massive chunk. Ed, I've done a bit of research and I've just realised that if I had invested only in healthcare stocks over the past 20 years, I would have made more money than if I'd been invested in global equities. So a fabulous outperformance that I missed out on. So what do you particularly like about the sector? Well, I mean, firstly, you're right. There's the global healthcare sector has outperformed the global stock market over a long period of time. And I think the main drivers for that are multiple. The first one is that it's been a good source of growth because we all want more healthcare. And typically, as we get richer, we tend to spend more money on healthcare, particularly, for instance, in the US, where the share of the economy being spent on healthcare has just gone up and up and up. Of course, that is driven partly by better treatments, but also by the aging demographics in the Western world, clearly are a boon for the healthcare sector as well. As we get older, we need more treatments if we want to have more healthy living years. So those are the main drivers. But of course, do not forget that the healthcare sector, particularly pharmaceutical sector, has patent protection. So that means when they develop a drug and when it comes to market, no one else can copy it for a number of years. So they have patent protection and that gives them the right to charge high prices so that they can recoup the cost of that research and development over time. But it does mean that the sector as a whole, and in particular the pharmaceutical and biotech parts of the sector, generally have high profit margins as a result. Ed, I read in the APA survey of US adults conducted in February 2021 that 30% of people surveyed reported that they had put on weight since the beginning of the pandemic, and 42% of respondents said they had put on more weight than they had intended, on average 29 pounds, so a bit more than 13 kilos. Have you put on weight since the start of the pandemic? Well, I'm very glad to report that the answer is no, but (laughs) I have had to concentrate. I'm quite lucky. I've got a lot of home fitness equipment, so I have been working out at home on a regular basis and getting out on a bicycle when I can, so I have a number of bicycles, so that helps. But but also on the diet front, I have tried to behave myself, kept the alcohol consumption down, which is obviously, it's not just alcohol you consume when you consume alcohol, it's calories. That glass yeah. of wine is about 250 calories. So it's rather expensive if you then don't <laughs> go and work it off. How um, about you though? Have you anyway? So let me gonna... throw that back at you. Um, uh, I can guess what the answer so the is going to be. But no. Is that true? I've though? certainly eaten more, but I've done enough exercise to keep trim. In the wake of the COVID-19 virus, people have indeed been eating more. The turnover of supermarkets is up. Research has shown that people are drinking more alcohol and smoking more, so health-wise, not a good cocktail. We now know in hindsight that obesity is a significant factor for people contracting the coronavirus. So Ed, do you think there will be a greater focus on obesity and diabetes going forward? For sure, because type 2 diabetes is brought on typically by obesity. The two are obviously very closely linked, and this is linked to the gradual increase in number of people who are overweight or morbidly obese in the Western world, which in turn is linked to the sort of classic overeating and not exercising enough. It's very simply a matter of calories in versus calories out. And in much of the Western world, our food is too calorific, and we sit in front of screens and in front of desks for too long. 
Now, the good news is that I do think there will be a focus because of coronavirus on reversing obesity and type 2 diabetes. And the very good news is there was recent research that showed that if you catch type 2 diabetes early on, early in the onset of the disease, you can actually reverse it without the use of drugs if you follow a strict diet and exercise regime for a number of months. So that is the good news, that behavioral changes can make a huge change to what is essentially a lifestyle disease. And I do think there'll be much more focus on this going forwards. And COVID has also ushered in the whole area of telehealth or telemedicine and online pharmacies. In other words, we have seen a massive, albeit inescapable, acceleration in the digital delivery of healthcare services, including patients consulting doctors and specialists by video. Actually, Ed, I had my first experience of this in March. I was quite dubious of it, to be honest, but was pleasantly surprised about how effective it was and how convenient it was to have a medical appointment sitting in the comfort of my own home. What about you, Ed? Well, funnily enough, I have for actually the work doctor, because in France, we have to consult with a work doctor once a year. So my annual appointment came up. And because of the lockdowns, we did it over video conference and it worked pretty well. So I think it works if you have a routine consultation or something that's easily diagnosable, like, you know, let's say flu or a cold, then that can work. However, I don't think it will work for every type of consultation because there are times when you do need to be physically examined in order to arrive at a diagnosis. And there's only a certain number of things that a doctor can divine over the video by asking well-appointed questions. Sometimes I think there will still be no substitute for physically visiting a doctor or a specialist from time to time. Another fast-growing segment of healthcare is drug discovery and diagnostics, aided by artificial intelligence. Ed, you have a PhD in AI. How do you think we can derive new drug candidates and also improve diagnosis through automation? Well, on the drug discovery side, I think artificial intelligence is bringing a whole new level of productivity to the field. What we have to understand is that previously... The drug discovery model was a bit random. In a sense, it was like picking a needle out of a haystack. You just basically chucked a lot of potential chemicals, which were drug candidates, at the system, and you ran them through preliminary trials, and you saw if any of them produced any sort of interesting results with which you might want to progress. But it was effectively random. You really were guessing. Whereas with artificial intelligence, there are ways of narrowing down this field so that you can identify more promising drug candidates computationally, because now we have a massive amount of computational power available to us. So we can go through millions upon millions of combinations of chemicals, and we can use AI to try to pick out some of the more promising candidates before we even start testing. So that hopefully is starting to short circuit the path to drug development and to getting to a drug through tests and to the marketplace. And I think as well as that, you have a better chance for any given drug candidate of it actually being effective and somewhat interesting and worthy of further research. Whereas sort of up to now, it's been very random. In the area of diagnosis, AI can also be very useful, for instance, with the diagnosis of potentially cancerous lumps on an x-ray. It's been shown that once you train an artificial intelligence program with the gathered experience of a number of expert radiologists and who are reading x-rays and you, you have what you call a training set where you train up the algorithm with the sort of positives and negatives opinions from these radiologists on lots and lots of potentially tumorous uh, x-rays. After all of that, it has been shown that these AI systems can then outperform 
even the most expert radiologists on average in terms of correct diagnosis of these x-rays for, for cancerous lumps. And the beauty of that, of course, is it's easily replicable. It's very difficult to replicate a very experienced human radiologist, physically speaking. Yeah, it takes years and years of experience and training. Whereas if you can embed that into a computer system, you can much more easily replicate the software and put it all around the world in different hospitals. And you can then improve the average diagnosis rate that you get pretty much everywhere. And that's what is starting to happen. So I think there is huge potential for this type of uh, learning process in healthcare and in diagnostics in particular to continue and to be spread even further. I'd like to talk now about personalised medicine. Could you give some examples of this? So basically the idea here, Charlotte, is that what you have are, let's say for if you are ill, is you may be given a treatment. You're prescribed a treatment by the doctor. Now, the problem is that not all treatments work for all conditions equally in all people. They work better in some people and not so well in others. And often there are what we call markers that can determine whether or not you are likely to respond well or not so well to a particular medical treatment for a particular medical condition. And so what we're talking about to some degree of personalised medicine is doing some diagnostic tests on your, your genetic makeup to see whether or not you would respond well to a specific treatment for a specific condition. And if the answer is no, then you can do other tests to maybe identify an alternative treatment that would be more likely to work. So this is the idea of making a the treatment more productive, so, so reducing the failure rate of treatments or of drug treatments. And secondly, of course, by giving the patient something that's going to be more efficient for them and more likely to work and cure the condition. So that's one level. Of course, we can go to other things like genetic therapies, but in the interest of time, it's probably take too long to go into that. But areas like gene therapy are another way of personalizing medicine to the individual to give them a treatment that is specific to them and, again, more likely to work as a result. The last aspect of healthcare I'd like to discuss today is mental health, which is coming into the fore as COVID has shown us how pervasive and damaging depression and anxiety are. But an upshot of the pandemic is that there is a new focus on treatments and the way to cope with these conditions. So what developments are you observing in this area? I mean, I did a first degree in psychology, uh, Charlotte, so I'm very interested in this area, personally speaking. And what I note is that we have a medical model that it seems to be much better at treating physical ailments, not so good at treating mental health, because mental health obviously is not necessarily visible. It's not like a rash or a cough. It's not a symptom that is necessarily immediately obvious in physical terms, but it is nonetheless just as real to the person suffering that ailment whether it be mental or physical. So I think we've just not devoted enough time and effort to mental health in the past in terms of treatments and diagnosis. And I think now, because of COVID, this is going to accelerate. And there are a number of very exciting treatments for anxiety and depression, not just the classic cognitive behavioral therapies, which do work well, but are very time consumptive and require specialist attention over quite a period. But also, even for things like treatment-resistant depression, there are new medical treatments being trialed now, which are based, for instance, on ketamine, which is a horse tranquilizer drug, or even on psilocybin, which is the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. So you, these all might sound rather crazy, but in fact, for types of severe depression for which we have no efficient and effective treatment today, these types of compounds are looking very promising. So I think even in the area of mental health, particularly with loneliness and depression, which is becoming very pervasive, not just amongst old people, but also amongst young single people too these days, particularly with lockdowns. I think there is a lot of promise in new treatments being developed today. 
Turning to the investment side now, how can people invest in healthcare? Well, obviously, you can buy the stocks, you can buy big pharma stocks, and that would be like very big diversified groups that typically sell a lot into the US and have a wide range of drug treatments on sale. You can be much more specific, more growth oriented, but also more risky, which is going for biotech stocks. And they tend to have fewer, but perhaps uh, earlier stage promising treatments that may or may not make it big on the uh, become a drug blockbuster in future. But again, that's obviously much riskier because you have fewer treatments and potential drugs on which you are basing your forecasts for sales and earnings. Or, of course, you can go broader and buy a fund. And, and my personal feeling is, unless you're going to do a lot of research into the sector, you're probably much better off starting with a fund or an ETF to get diversified exposure across the healthcare space. And there are a number of such funds and ETFs. I would personally go for a global one because it is a global sector. There's a lot in the US, there's quite a bit in Asia as well as in Europe in terms of healthcare companies that are very interesting and worth investing in. So I think a global fund is probably your best first stop today. And to do something relatively diversified, not just biotech, but maybe more diversified across big pharma, biotech, and also medical equipment, which is another very promising and a very high margin area within the healthcare sector. Thank you very much, Ed Shing. See you soon. Thank you, Charlotte. Bye-bye. 